When I was five years old, I had a best friend named Rusty. He lived down the street from me. We did all the things that you would typically do in 1973. We run amok in the neighborhood. We got into all kinds of trouble. We played cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. Rusty's house had a giant tree in front and had a tire swing. We would have contests to see how high we could get it and then jump off. One day, as Rusty and I were playing, Rusty was not paying attention. And I gave the swing a giant heave-ho and bam, it knocked him clean on his back and knocked the wind out of him. So he's lying on the ground, <gasps> gasping for air. And I did what any good best friend would do. I ran home and hid in my room. <laughs> True, I did. I was scared to death that I had hurt him. And then I felt really bad that I didn't do anything to help him. And sure enough, later that evening, as people did in 1973, his parents came over with Rusty, right? And like all parents back in 1973, my parents didn't defend me. Mark, get out here. Is this true? What Mr. and Mrs. Tunnelson, is this, is this true? Look me in the eye and apologize right now. Tell Rusty. And I, I was devastated on the inside, okay? I, I was devastated. Now, a little bit later on in a different neighborhood, uh, our street then, we had long streets, and we lived on one end of the street, and all the kids lived on the other end of the street. And I was down there, and we were all down there, and there was a group of them, and they were tormenting my little brother. Now, since this is church, and we should be truthful and honest, I was, on the whole, a jerk of a big brother, okay? So I acknowledge that. Brent, if you're listening online, buddy, I acknowledge <laughs> you, you were right. <laughs> I was a bad big brother. But in that, in, on that day, for whatever reason, and they were saying some despicable things about my brother, and I found that a fist was forming in my hand. And I said to the one kid who was kind of the ringleader, stop it. Stop it. I mean it. Stop it. And before I knew what was happening, I had knocked that guy clean on the ground and bloodied his nose. So now there's blood everywhere. And of course, I did exactly what I did when I was five. I ran home and hid in my room. <laughs> and I was scared to death that I had hurt this kid. And you know, the funny thing is, any other kid that had knocked the bully to the ground, right, would have had a, that's right. David and Goliath, who's next, huh? You want a piece of these, huh? Right? Any other kid would have had some swagger, but not me. I ran and I hit home and I was, I hurt this other kid. Oh. So my parents, I might have been a sensitive kid, but my parents actually did some things growing up that uh, might not be as common today. So one of the things my parents would do all the time was, Mark, look at me, look me in the eye. Look me in the eye when I'm talking to you, son. Like, I, you know, and when you were in trouble, you didn't want to look your parents in the eye. You wanted to look at the ground, the wall, like anything. And it was, you know, and it wasn't just my parents who did that. A grandparents, aunt and uncle, look me in the eye. Look me. And the other thing that they did all the time growing up was, uh, do you know how that makes your little brother feel? Huh? Let me tell you. And they would spell it out. And then they would want to see that I had genuine, heartfelt concern for my little brother. And if I didn't, bam, the beatings would start. 
And then I would feel really bad because I just gotten beaten with an inch of my life, right? I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again, okay? So now contrast my experience being, I guess what you might call a, a little bit of a sensitive child with today's stereotypical school shooter. And you're like, what? That, uh, that, that is not even a fair comparison, I know, but, but let me talk about a couple of things about the stereotypical school shooter. This is actually one of them. He did some terrible things. When, pe when, a, when a young man, and it's typically what they are, a young man comes into a school and starts shooting people, everybody reports the same thing. I knew as soon as I saw his eyes, something was off, right? People say this, and they're like, it was like a blank stare. It was like nothing was there. And it freaks it. Just the look on their face is unnerving because it's not the normal look, the human look that people have. And so people report this. And then the second thing that's typical about the stereotypical school shooter is that when everything's said and done, if they live, if they're captured alive, there's usually no remorse, right? There's no courtroom sobbing about the victims, you know, and, and oh, I can't believe, you know, there's no, there's no empathy. Wouldn't you agree that the ability to empathize is important, right? Wouldn't you agree that the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes is really important these days? It is. Would, would it surprise you to learn that in the United States of America, there is a marked decline in empathy? Among college student development officers, they report a 40% decline in markers for empathy among college students from 1996 to 2016. Uh, school educators and counselors have actually come up with a term, EDD, empathy deficit disorder. This is what the lady from, uh, who's the principal of Holbrook Middle School says, and this is what she writes about her students, and I want you to hear this quote. They're talking at each other with local comments, minuete really, short bursts, as though they were speaking texts. They're communicating immediate social needs. They aren't listening to each other. And then here's the kicker. The most painful thing to watch is that they don't know when they've hurt each other's feelings. They hurt each other, but when you sit down with them and try to get them to see what has happened, they can't imagine things from the other side. My students can build websites, but they can't talk to teachers. And students don't want to talk to other students. They don't want the pressure of conversation. And the key phrase, the most painful thing to watch is that they don't know when they've hurt each other's feelings. Students and young people, I'm sorry, but educators report that you guys interrupt much more frequently than previous generations of kids. Whether it's in a classroom setting or in conversation, if you have a thought, it comes right out of your mouth. Um, the other thing that happens more frequently, and this is reported by uh, crotchety educators again, is that many young people today seem genuinely surprised when they've hurt someone else. It's like, really, that, that, that upsets you? And they're caught off guard by it. Sherry Turkle calls this a crisis of empathy. And she says there simply aren't enough people in America with the ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes. I'm a Trekkie, and I know how important this is because Captain Picard had something Captain Kirk never had. He had an empath from Beta Z. Counselor Deanna Troy, right? All the time, all the time. 
I'm sensing fear, Captain. And then if she didn't verbalize what she was sensing about the emotions of other people, it was always Commander Riker that would be like, Deanna, what are you sensing? <laughs> and then it was like, thank you for that line. I will get my line now, okay? And I'm sensing. And she would lay it out. This is what I'm sensing. Uh, here's, here's what I want you to understand today. In your child's school, in our community organizations, in political circles, and in our legislatures, we need more empaths. We need more empaths because when, when, when empathy, when we show empathy, when we have the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, everybody wins. Everybody wins when we have that capacity. Now, I want to draw out a distinction between s s sympathy and empathy. They're, they're often used interchangeably, but there's a subtle difference. With sympathy, you feel for the person. You may even feel sorry for them. Like, man, poor Brandy. <laughs> I just feel for her. I may have no clue what Brandy has actually experienced, or I may have no clue what she's feeling, but I just feel bad for her. Man, it stinks to be Brandy. And then there's empathy. <laughs> Brandy's like, screw that. Okay. Then there's empathy. Empathy is different. You share a feeling with someone. You know what it is because you've either experienced it yourself or you have the ability to put yourself in their shoes. Sympathy and empathy propel us to action, right? They allow us to change, change our mind about something, change our course of action in light of someone else's feelings or circumstances. And I wanna suggest to you today Empathy enables you to love others the way God loves us. Let me say that again. Empathy allows you to love others the way God loves us. In the Old Testament, God entered into a covenant with a group of people, the Hebrews, and he made promises of provision and blessing, and they made promises of allegiance and obedience. They entered into a covenant. Well, over time, God's people, the Hebrews, wanted to hedge their bets. Yahweh's great, but we're gonna have this little Asherah pole here, and we're gonna do some things for Baal because, you know, we just wanna make sure that all the bases are covered, you know, just in case Yahweh can't bless the way he says he's gonna bless, and they hedged their bets. And that made God a little crotchety with them, and he sent prophets to warn them, hey, we had an agreement. I would provide what you need and bless you and you would give allegiance and obedience. Hello, is this thing on? And so the prophets came and they warned. One of the prophets that God sent was a man named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah came to announce that Judah and Jerusalem were gonna be invaded as punishment for not keeping up with their end of the covenant. Uh, and in chapter eight of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, look, an army is coming, and it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. There's going to be famine. You're going to think, man, drinking someone's urine sounds good to me. I mean, it's going to be bad. And I'm telling you, you need to repent. Now, the people in listening to that responded the way we always do when we're confronted with some aspect of our character that's inconsistent with what we say they threw him in a cistern and then they threw him in prison. 
right? Because they didn't want to hear what Jeremiah had to say. They were stubborn, the Bible tells us. And then in 587 BC, the Babylonian army captures Jerusalem. And everything that Jeremiah promised would happen, happens. And they find him in prison and they release him. This is what Jeremiah has to say about that moment. My grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. Listen to the weeping of my people. It can be heard all across the land. Has the Lord abandoned Jerusalem? Is her king no longer there? Why have they provoked my anger with their carved idols and their worthless foreign gods, says the Lord? The harvest is finished, the summer is gone, and the people cry, we're not saved. I hurt with the hurt of my people. I mourn and am overcome with grief. Is there no medicine in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why is there no healing for the wounds of my people? Jeremiah actually has a nickname by biblical scholars. He's called the weeping prophet. He's responsible for the book of Lamentations in the Bible, which is just a song of, uh, a set of songs of tremendous sorrow. Jeremiah didn't respond the way I would expect someone with no empathy to respond, right? The, you've been, he's been telling people, repent, repent. You haven't been keeping your end. What do they do? They throw him in a cistern and then in prison. And then the army comes. Jeremiah doesn't get up on a pedestal and go, told you, you people wouldn't listen. Threw me in a cistern. How'd that work out for you? Boo, right? There was no gloating. There was no, none of that. He was heartbroken that the people, his people, had chosen a path that led to destruction. Jeremiah is given the opportunity to go with Babylonian officers and he refuses. He chooses to stay with his people in captivity. Of course, Jeremiah is just a precursor for what we see in Jesus. And I wanna focus on one passage from the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know if you know this about Jesus, but over the course of his public ministry, he disappointed a lot of people. I don't know if you know this about Jesus, but he failed to cater to the religious and social elites who became jealous of his popularity. He failed to deliver on a flesh and blood kingdom that his disciples expected. They were thinking, in some of them in their minds, this is gonna be great, we're gonna kick out the Romans, we're actually gonna have a palace in Jerusalem, Jesus is gonna sit on it as king, and we're gonna be the viceroys and minions that carry it out, it's gonna be awesome. He failed to deliver on that. Uh, he kept healing marginalized people, people who were lame and sick because as everyone at the time knew, they were sick because they were sinners. Someone in their family sinned. They're only getting their just desserts and Jesus kept healing them. He failed to capitalize on his popularity by uh, uh, raking in money and prestige from himself. I can tell you today, if you're a popular pastor and everybody wants to hear what you have to say and people are like, man, he brings it every time, you can get really well off. Not Jesus. He says, the son of man has no place to rest his head. Okay? And in chapter 9, he's starting to get some pushback. People in chapter 9 are saying to Jesus, hey, you blaspheme God, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, 
Your disciples don't fast. What's their problem? Do you not follow the law, Jesus? Oh, hey, Jesus, you know why you're able to heal all those people? I bet it's because you and Satan are BFFs. Oh, yeah, Jesus, that's right. You're healing people because you're with Satan. So in the context of that, Jesus is getting some what we would call negative pushback. Notice what happens to him and what he says. And this is verse 35 and following. Jesus traveled throughout all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. The Greek word for that, I love it, splanchnitzomai. It's almost like German, splanchnitzomai. It doesn't mean like he had compassion. It means to feel it with intensity in your inward parts. And I'm not talking about that you had a binge night at Taco Bell. I'm talking about compassion, empathy. You really feel it in your gut for somebody. That's what Jesus has. He felt for them, even in, even in the midst of getting negative feedback and accusations, he felt for them. Now, sheep and shepherd were a well-known metaphor among the Jews. The Lord is my shepherd. And what kind of shepherd is the Lord? He leads me to green pastures and still waters. He's a good shepherd, the Lord is, right? Jesus knows this and he looks out and he, he sees people who are oppressed by Rome, who have given up, many of them, on the religion of the day because there's so many commandments and so many things they have to do. They're like, I can't, I can't, there's no way I can keep all of those. So I'll do temple once a year like I'm supposed to. But other than that, I'm just going to hope it all works out because I don't obey God the way the Pharisees obey God. I'm not that righteous. Um, he sees all of this. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he changes the metaphor. Uh, sheep and harvest are referring to the same entity. It's referring to people. And he says, the harvest is great, but there's no one to take the harvest in. It's ready, and there's no one to take it in and do what the harvest is for. Like Jeremiah, Jesus got close enough to the people to feel and understand and to empathize. And God wasn't just content to send us another prophet, right? The whole point about Jesus is that God became one of us. God knows what it is to walk a mile in our shoes. He has. It moved God to act. Let me ask some questions. Do you find it easy to tell when someone wants to talk to you or when someone is struggling? Or are you just oblivious to it? When someone is upset or hurt, do you tend to ask them questions and, and find out more, or do you tend to launch into, oh, I, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. Let me tell you about how my boss hurt me. How do you roll when someone is hurt? Do other people's misfortune or bad news ever get to you in the sense that it bothers you greatly? I, I want to give some very practical practical application today. Um, 
I think that, I think we need empathy more than we've needed in quite a long time. We need it in churches. We need it in our community. Um, and, and I'll get to why in just a minute. But if you're a parent, I'm almost going to get fiery for a moment, okay? You can't be lazy about this. America will produce narcissistic consumers, people who grow up into men and women who cannot see past the end of their nose, young men who look at women as nothing more to objects than to fulfill their own fantasies and desires. Our culture produces people incapable of empathy. As a parent, you can't rely on 20 Sundays a year and the schools to make up for what can happen at home. And so moms and dads, I know you're tired. I know how hard it is. I'm tired at the end of the day, but on this issue, you've got to bring your A game. There's got to be some intentionality. One thing you can do is insist on a regular mealtime. I'm not talking about every night, but throughout the week, there ought to be times when you're sitting together at the table, where you're having conversation, talking about each other's days. In that context, that's where your kids learn some basic empathy skills. As a parent, you can ask your kid, how are you feeling? Or when they're younger, did anyone hurt your feelings at school today? You'll be surprised if you ask that question 10 times in a row, it comes up, well, as a matter of fact, and you would have never known. You can be upfront about your own feelings. This is a huge growth area for me because I'm so out of touch sometimes with what I'm feeling. But as parents, we can verbalize. You know, I'm really mad. Somebody did something that was unfair, and I'm really mad about it. It has nothing to do with you, but man, am I mad, <laughs> right? We can verbalize these things. And last but not least, the one thing my parents did, please do this with your kids. Look me in the eye when I'm talking to you. You're like, no, I'm going to channel Edna. Channel her. <laughs> channel her with power and ferocity. Look me in the eye. Eye contact is critical. There are now studies among pediatricians, and they're worried because of the use of smartphones, that some kids, babies, infants, aren't getting enough eye contact with their mothers and it has the potential to be devastating for their capacity to develop empathy. Pediatricians are worried about this, okay? The second thing that we can do is, and this is for all of us, acknowledge your ignorance. When somebody's telling you about a misfortune, when someone's hurt or upset, instead of saying, I know how you feel, which is what you want to say, say, I have no clue. Help me understand. And let them talk. I have no clue, help me understand, and let them talk. Acknowledge our ignorance. And then look them in the eye as they talk to you. <laughs> Here's another thing. Read, read books with thick character development where you're able to identify with the protagonist of the story, right? This is why we, one of the reasons we read to our kids when they're younger when we're reading to them. At the end of the story, we're like, how do you think Bunny felt? Well, I think Bunny was sad. Why do you think Bunny was sad? And you have a conversation, and it's right there, and it's helping them get on a path to empathy. Um, re watch really good movies that are two hours long and have great character development, okay? Because that helps your capacity to develop empathy, okay? And last but not least, 
get a different perspective. When you put yourself in a situation that you're not familiar with, you get a whole new perspective. When I grew up in a, an exclusively white town in the middle of Indiana, when I went to college, I had absolutely no understanding what it meant to be black in America. Thank God for Michael, one of my friends. And you know, the moment we're on the tollway and one of the Chicago, uh, the Illinois state cops lights him up and I saw his reaction and it was visceral. And I'm like, what are you panicked about? We're just, it's no big deal. What do you mean it's, you know? And I understood, like I got exposed to something I had never experienced before, right? And going to church with him, right? The, and I, I'm, it's Sunday night church. I knew what it meant to be Baptist. I had on my slacks and a button-down shirt. And he yelled at me, what are you doing? I'm going to get in trouble. You're like, this is God's house. Like, I, I understood cultural things, okay? I'm just saying, get a different perspective, right? I, this is important. This is so important. And, and I want to explain why. I'm concerned about where our country is and where it's going, okay? So you're gonna get a rare thing from me today, so watch out. I'm concerned because on the one hand, on the one hand, there is this lack of empathy. Across the board, we seem unable to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, while at the same time, our capacity to vilify people that we don't like or with whom we disagree gets bigger and bigger. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, I, I read recently in a very progressive publication that I read, uh, someone made this series of sentences in their essay. You know what's wrong with America? It's all these racist Trump supporters in the middle of America. And they're holding us back from achieving the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King, and we would be better off without them. That was their comment. And I thought, like, what do you mean by that exactly? Like, we're going to get in buses and go to Canada? Like, you know, better off without. Could you clarify that? And then in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, I listened to another, this was a political pundit, and this was their, this was their essay. Well, you know... Harvey should have hit California. Actually, let me correct that. What's needed in California is a massive enough earthquake that the western two-thirds of us drops off into the ocean. And their conclusion, America would improve immediately overnight. Really, the deaths of millions of our countrymen are going to make us a better country? In their mind, yes. And you would say to me, Max, that's just rhetoric. It's just talk. You mean like 1957 when somebody would say, a white man would say, Alfonso here's getting kind of uppity. He's an uppity blank. You know what this town needs is a good lynching would correct Alfonso's attitude and be good for the town. You mean talk like that? Talk? No, 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 no. Absolutely no, okay? Empathy is needed. This kind of talk when we vilify groups of people and, and fail to understand or grasp are putting us in places that I, is not good, all right? And I, I want to tell you a story that I've been following. Um, uh, in, uh, in Germany... I've been fascinated with the idea of how, how do you get where 
you know, how do things happen? Why do things happen in societies? Um, and I'm always fascinated by how you get to certain places. Um, and I look back and I, with my superior 2017, I, I look at the Christians in Germany and I go, what were you thinking, right? Like, how could you be so duped? And I judge them. And it's so wrong for me to do that on so many levels. Because I, I, I wasn't there. I don't know. Um, but if you read the Germans and how they went about arresting and imprisoning, first of all, political opponents, and then the communists, they didn't like the communists, and then the Jews. Um, at first, they would have these people dig ditches and they would line them up and soldiers would shoot them in the back. And they discovered that it was so traumatic for the soldiers, they needed to find a different method, okay? And thank goodness, uh, the head of the SS was at a dinner party and got so sloshed, he drove his car into his garage and closed it. And if it hadn't been for a junior officer, he would have died. And they thought, oh. So then they developed box trucks. They, they converted box trucks where the exhaust would go into the box. And they would load people into these things. And... Of course, it takes a while, so people are screaming. And again, it was traumatic for the guards, so they decided that they had to figure out other ways. And there was a man that was instrumental in Auschwitz, and his name was Adolf Eichmann. And Adolf Eichmann was responsible for transportation and so much more with Auschwitz. And after the war, in the confusion of post-World War II Germany, he managed to escape. He just, he made it out of the country. Well, in, in 1959 or 1960, um, Israeli agents who were tasked with finding Nazis that had gotten away found him and arrested him, and they put him on trial. This is a fascinating thing to me because um, I, I've had this talk with, uh, uh, I have someone in my life who had a boss who was very abusive to all the employees, and I didn't believe what they were telling me, like it was so fantastical, I thought there's no way anyone would do that in America. You're, you, you've gotta be exaggerating. And I've been reading how people who survived the camps in the early 1950s just would often not talk about it because when they would start to talk about their experience, people would be like, oh, there's no way that happened. Like that's, and so the Eichmann trial was a game changer on two fronts. One all of a sudden, the entire world tuned in. It was television, right? Except for a few days of the Bay of Pigs, like everybody was paying attention to the Eichmann trial. And the Israelis had hired a, one of the best Hollywood producers of the, a, uh, of the age to come out and film it and, and put it and make sure the camera angles and everything else. And uh, this particular man was convinced that Eichmann would break and that... Uh, when they got to the part of the trial where they showed pictures and, it, and what, went ha what happened in Auschwitz, he would be so devastated he would break right there in the courtroom. Well, of course, it never happened. It never happened. And he was beside himself. Eichmann's response, of course, was, I just facilitated transportation. I was just following orders. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, in a sense. There was no empathy against this, 
against all the times in our country and so many other countries and cultures when people vilify a group of people, against that, against all the times when we just won't take the time to understand what someone else has gone through or what they're actually feeling, against all of that stands Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, who, when he saw the crowds, splaznitzomai, he was moved with deep compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We need many more people who will walk in the way of Jesus, not just here, but all over the world. I'm telling you, his kingdom, his way is so much better.